0: Thank you for listening to this edition of the Notable Speeches Podcast. There are thousands of podcasts available, literally hundreds of thousands if the research numbers are to be believed, so we appreciate your listening to this one. For the next several episodes, we're presenting speeches of a type often heard at this time of year, but not this year due to COVID-19 restrictions. We're referring, of course, to commencement addresses. On this episode, a 2015 commencement speech, by the late Supreme Court Associate Justice Antonin Scalia, delivered about eight months before his death in early 2016. Justice Scalia spoke at graduation exercises for Stone Ridge School of the Sacred Heart, an independent Catholic high school for girls located just outside Washington, D.C. in Bethesda, Maryland. One of Mr. Scalia's 36 grandchildren was in the graduating class. In this address, Justice Scalia demonstrates qualities often seen in his legal writing, such as making points simply and directly, while sprinkling in gentle humor, and spearing a few sacred cows along the way.
1: Thank you very much. It used to be uh, a lot safer to give a commencement address than it is nowadays. Um, I am told that the graduating classes in some schools, to while away the time, As the speaker drones on, have devised a kind of contest with an appropriate prize to see who can write out in advance the greatest number of the platitudes that the speaker will deliver. Indeed, some years ago, the Washington Post published a bingo card containing some of the most frequently used graduation platitudes, ranging from, this is not an end, it is a beginning, to, you are the future leaders of America. The idea was that you would take the card to the graduation ceremony and if the speaker is platitudinous enough that you can check off a whole string of old chestnuts, a whole row up or across, the entire class would stand up in unison and yell, bingo. I have heard some speeches where I wanted to jump up and yell bingo even without the benefit of a, of a bingo card. But in fact uh, taking some of the available store of platitudes out of circulation is probably a good idea. So good an idea in fact that I intend to make it the subject of my remarks today. My problem with these platitudes is not that they are old and hackneyed, but that a lot of them are wrong. Let me examine a few. Number one, a good one to start with because it's used not just in graduation addresses, but in television news broadcasts, editorials, and all forms of what are meant to be evocative communications. The old standby, we face unprecedented challenges. Class of 2015, you should not leave Stone Ridge High School thinking that you face challenges that are at all, in any important sense, Unprecedented. Humanity has been around for at least some 5,000 years or so, and I doubt that the basic challenges it has confronted are any worse now or, alas, even much different from what they ever were. Consider, for example, what is often thought to be a brand new problem, environmental protection. Not really new. The famous London fogs of the 19th century, which make such a wonderful background for Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper movies, turn out to have been not fog at all, but mostly smog caused by innumerable coal-burning fireplaces. And every ancient city from Athens to Rome to Venice had major sanitation and waste problems. Today, to be sure, we face the capacity to destroy the entire world with the atom bomb. I suppose you can consider that a new problem, but it is really new in degree rather than in kind. If you were a teenager graduating from the Priam Memorial High School in Troy, Greece about 1500 BC, with an army of warlike Greeks encamped all around the city walls, and if you knew that losing the war would mean as it did that the city would be utterly destroyed, its men killed, its women and children sold into slavery, I doubt that that prospect was any less terrible to you than the prospect of the destruction of the world. It was all of the world you ever used anyway, your country, your family, your friends, your entire society. The thought that other societies at least would go on was of no more comfort to the Trojans or later to the Carthaginians, who were also utterly destroyed, or to the Campbell clan, which was massacred at Glencoe, then it is of comfort to you that if this world is incarcerated well, it's good to know there may be other worlds. The challenges faced by different societies at different times take different forms, defending against the French longbow versus defending against the S-4 missile but in substance they are always the same. Number one, the forces of nature, how to assure a continuing supply of food, fuel, shelter, and clothing. And number two, the forces of man, how to get along with one another or defend against those we cannot get along with. It is important not to believe that you face unprecedented challenges, not only because you might get discouraged, but also because you might come to think that the lessons of the past, the wisdom of humanity, there are a couple of good platitudes come to think of it, which it is the purpose of education to convey is of not much use. I occasionally give a little talk about the Constitution in the course of which I discuss some of the writings of the Founding Fathers in the Federalist Papers. They knew they were facing great challenges in seeking to establish At one and the same time, a federation and a democracy. But they did not think for a moment it was an unprecedented challenge. If you read the Federalist Papers, as I hope you will, or have, you will find they are full of examples to support particular dispositions in the Constitution. Examples from Greece, from Rome, from medieval Italy, France, and Spain. So, if you want to think yourselves educated, Do not believe that you face unprecedented challenges. Much closer to the truth is a different platitude. There is nothing new under the sun. The second platitude I want to discuss comes in many flavors. It can be variously delivered as follow your star or never compromise your principles or Quoting Polonius in Hamlet, who people forget was supposed to be a silly man, to thine own self be true. Now, this can be very good or very bad advice, depending on who you think you are. (laughs) Indeed, follow your star if you want to head north, and it's the North Star. But if you want to head north, and it's Mars, you had better follow somebody else's star. Indeed, never compromise your principles unless, of course, your principles are Adolf Hitler's. In which case, you would be well advised to compromise them as much as you can. And indeed, to thine own self be true, depending on who you think you are. It is a belief today that seems particularly to beset modern society that believing deeply in something, following that belief is the most important thing a person can do. Get out there and picket, or boycott, or electioneer, or whatever. Show yourself to be a, quote, committed person. That is the fashionable phrase. I am here to tell you that it is much less important how committed you are than what you are committed to. If I had to choose, I would always take the less dynamic Indeed, even the lazy person who knows what's right, rather than the zealot in the cause of error. He may move slower, but he's headed in the right direction. Movement is not necessarily progress. More important than your obligation to follow your conscience, or at least prior to that obligation, is the obligation to form your conscience properly. Nobody, remember this, nobody, ever proposed evil as such. Neither Hitler nor Lenin nor any other despot you can name ever came forward with a proposal that read, let's create a really oppressive and evil society. Rather, Hitler said, let's take the means necessary to restore our national pride and civic order. And Lenin said, let's take the means necessary to assure a fair distribution of the goods of the world. In short, it is your responsibility, women of the class of 2015, not just to be zealous in the pursuit of your ideals, but to be sure that your ideals are the right ones. Not merely in their ends, but in their means. That is perhaps the hardest part of being a good human being. Good intentions are not enough. Being a good person begins with being a wise person. Then when you follow your conscience you will be heading in the right direction. The next platitude I want to address is perhaps the most common one especially at graduation addresses and most especially at graduation addresses in the nation's capital. I refer to the phrase the United States is the greatest country in the world. Now I do not intend to contradict that platitude because I think it to be true. But I would like to explore with you a bit what it is we mean when we say we believe it. A few possibilities can easily be rejected. We don't mean, certainly, the most physically beautiful country in the world. Acre for acre, Switzerland has it all over us. (laughs) And even if you take the total number of scenic wonders, I'm not sure we come out first. At least you couldn't be sure unless you've traveled everywhere nor do we mean by the greatest country, the most powerful country, because then we would have to think that next to living in the US, we would like to live in China or Russia, which I doubt is the case. Perhaps then, when we say our country is the greatest, we mean that it best satisfies both the physical and the spiritual desires of our people. But no, we could not mean that. Because on that analysis, the nation of Attila the Hun could be considered great. It certainly satisfied the physical desire of its people to take everything in sight, and the principal spiritual desire of its people to dominate others. Perhaps then we think it the greatest country in the world because it is the freest. Now there is a real possibility. In fact, I think I think there is a platitude derivative of the one that I am discussing, Quote, we are the greatest because we are the freest. I have heard that very often, as I suppose you have. But is it really true? If so, then I suppose the really greatest nation in the world would be the one where there were no laws and chaos prevailed. The Wild West, perhaps, in the days before the law arrived, where a fella could shoot up a town unless somebody bigger could stop him. No, that can't be the answer either. Not to keep you in suspense, let me tell you what I think the answer is. We are the greatest because of the good qualities of our people and because of a governmental system that gives room for those qualities to develop. I refer to qualities such as generosity. Americans are there not only when their neighbors need help, but even when strangers on the other side of the world do. Qualities such as honesty. Americans are, by and large, people you can trust. George Washington and the cherry tree. Abe Lincoln returning the book through the snowstorm. They're both part of our tradition. Qualities such as constancy. Americans can be counted on. They're not quitters, even when things look bleak. Valley Forge and Bull Run are part of our tradition, too. Qualities such as tolerance. Americans believe in things and believe deeply but will try to persuade others to their way of thinking and not to coerce others. The First Amendment and the Virginia Declaration of Religious Freedom are part of our tradition too and I could go on. Self-reliance, initiative, civility, these are also qualities we take pride in regarding as somehow especially American, characteristic of our great country. These are what make us the greatest. And not only is it not true that we are the greatest because we are the freest, but rather precisely the opposite is true. We are the freest because we have those qualities that make us the greatest. For freedom is a luxury that can be afforded only by the good society. When civic virtue diminishes, freedom will will inevitably diminish as well. Take the simplest example. Many municipalities do not have any ordinance against spitting gum out on the sidewalk. As far as the law is concerned, you are free to do that. But that freedom is a consequence of the fact that not many people are so thoughtless of others as to engage in that practice. If that behavior becomes commonplace, you can be absolutely sure that an ordinance will be passed and that freedom will disappear. The same principle applies to larger matters. The English legal philosopher Lord Acton had it right when he said that society is the freest, which is the most responsible. The reason is quite simple and quite inexorable. Legal constraint, the opposite of freedom, is in most of its manifestations a cure for irresponsibility. You're all familiar, I hope, with Madison's famous passage in number 51 of the Federalist Papers. Madison wrote, What is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. The same can be said of the product of government laws and the constraints upon individuals which those laws establish. Law steps in and will inevitably step in when the virtue and prudence of the society itself is inadequate to produce the needed result. When the society is composed entirely of criminals, only the strict regimentation of a prison will suffice. If I am right that we are the freest because we are the greatest, The message for your lives should be clear. Do not go about praising the Bill of Rights and the wonderful liberties we enjoy without at the same time developing within yourselves and within those whose lives you touch the virtue that makes all that possible. The last platitude I want to mention, it is appropriately last because it usually comes towards the end of the commencement address, goes somewhat like this this is not an end it is a beginning. I want to tell you that is not true. (laughs) There is no more significant rite of passage in our society, no more abrupt end to a distinct age of your life than the graduation from high school and the departure from home that soon follows. You have been living up to now in a moral environment that could be closely supervised by the people that love you most, your parents. They got to know your friends, your teachers, your school, and did what they could to change or improve them when they thought that was for your good. Most of you will be going off to college, which is not a place where your parents can any longer control the influence upon your character, and which is not, by and large, a place where anybody else seeks to exercise that control as well. From here on, you are much more than you have ever been. I'm, I'm groping for a platitude to convey the thought. <laughs> Captains of your own ship. <laughs> Masters of your own destiny. Your moral formation, what makes you a good person or a bad one, a success in all that matters, or a failure is now pretty much up to you. As a parent who has sent off nine children from high school, away from home and into a world that has a lot of wisdom but also a lot of folly, a lot of good but also a lot of bad, I assure you that if you are not at all worried at that prospect, your parents are. <laughs> But there comes a time to let go, and it is now. I have high hopes for the Stone Ridge class of 2015 because I know some of them, and I know the quality of education in knowledge as well as in goodness that this school has provided. Good luck and let's see, I had one last platitude around here somewhere. Oh yes, the
0: future is in your hands. Bingo. From a 2015 commencement address, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia speaking at Stone Ridge School of the Sacred Heart in suburban Washington, D.C. We welcome your comments and suggestions. Send us an email, feedback, at NotableSpeeches.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at Notable Speeches. And if you haven't done so yet, we invite you to subscribe to the Notable Speeches podcast. Search for Notable Speeches in the podcast app you prefer. I'm Joseph Slife. Thank you for listening.